Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. I hope you've kept your Bibles marked to the book of Revelation, because that is where we are again this evening. And it is Revelation chapter 14 where we want to begin tonight. And we will once again be in the book of Revelation for the entirety of our study this evening. And we will actually as well make an occasional visit to our songbook. So you, if you're a songbook user, you might even keep your hand handy with that. You'll see what I mean as we progress along. It is great to see everybody tonight, even though we have a few more casualties to the fall break monster since this morning, but we do have a good group who is gathered here tonight uh, nonetheless. I'm glad that you're here tonight and appreciate the good way in which you've joined in those songs. Appreciate Sawyer. What a good job he did leading us in those songs. Man, I don't think I could preach with one arm. But he's up here leading singing with just one arm, so that's pretty impressive. But uh, really proud of him and encouraged by that. Hope you're eager to get into the Word of God right now. In Revelation chapter 14, I'm reading here in the first three verses. In Revelation 14, beginning in verse 1, John says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Let's talk about worship tonight. If a preacher in a church of Christ gets up in front of the audience and says that he's going to preach a sermon about worship, what is that sermon likely to be about? Well, if it's like a lot of the sermons that I heard during the first 37 years during my life and all the different preachers that I've heard preach throughout my life, then there's a good chance it's going to be a sermon that is designed to rebuke and to warn about wrong worship. And that is certainly important. We need to think about, we need to study about what the Bible says about wrong and false worship. We need to study about Cain and Abel and why it is that God did not accept Cain's sacrifice. We need to hear about Nadab and Abihu and why it is that God is not pleased with unauthorized worship. We need to learn about the pattern of worship for the New Testament church that we read about in the New Testament and how they did not have instrumental music, how they did not observe the Lord's Supper quarterly or annually and all of the other kinds of innovations that we could discuss. All of that is what we might label as negative preaching. And I want to say again, there's a place for that. We need to hear those kinds of lessons. We need to be reminded about the fallacies and about the failings of wrong worship. We see so much of that in the religious world that is around us today. And we want to be reminded of that so that we don't find ourselves caught up in wrong, bad worship. And you've heard those sermons in the past. In fact, I was looking through the sermons that I preached just in the last nine months. I preached at least... Three complete sermons about wrong kinds of worship. And if you stick around long enough, you're going to hear me preach more of those kinds of sermons because we do not want to be involved in wrong worship here. One of the things that I've learned in the four years that I have been preaching full-time, 
birthday is, the anniversary of that happy anniversary. I hope it's a happy anniversary for this relationship between me and the congregation here at Lakeside. But in the last four years, one of the things that I have learned is that in preaching, there must be balance. For just as much as we need sermons that warn us about wrong worship, we need sermons as well that encourage us to right worship. We don't just want to know what makes worship bad. We also want to know what makes worship good. And the truth is, I believe that the positive side of that equation, I fear that that has been tragically neglected in our pulpits for a very long time. We need to talk more about what makes worship good. We need to talk more about what makes worship excellent in the eyes of God, what kinds of attitudes and motivations are necessary that will help us to be excellent worshipers. Well, in my estimation, there might be no better place that we could go in the New Testament to find some good and excellent and, dare I say, awesome worship than right here in the book of Revelation. You might be surprised to hear me say that, especially if you were here this morning and you heard the things that I said from the book of Revelation about what the main idea is in the book of Revelation. That the primary message of this book is to help Christians to persevere even amidst persecution. But I believe as a byproduct of that, as a byproduct of the glory that Christ brings to His suffering saints, is that in this book we get to see some amazing glimpses of some really excellent worship that is going on in heaven. That's right. In the book of Revelation, we get to see rejoicing and praise that is happening. Did you notice in verse 3 of what we just read? It is happening right before the throne of God. In that way then, I believe that Revelation serves as kind of an unexpected handbook on worship. Now, Revelation, let me be clear, Revelation does not provide us with a pattern for what the New Testament church is to do in worship today. What Revelation does do is it shows us some principles. Principles for good, excellent, God-honoring, God-pleasing worship that I believe must be at the center and the heart and the core of everything that we do in our worship to God. And I believe this evening if we can grab a hold of those principles to see how worship is conducted in heaven, what it's about, what it means, uh, its focus, its emphasis. I believe if we can do that, then we will have gone a long way in helping ourselves to become better worshipers and be drawn closer to the Lord. Let me set before you tonight three things that Revelation shows us about good worship. I'm going to start that in Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to stitch together about three passages here right at the beginning. In Revelation chapter 4, lots of Bible tonight. That's really the case about every time I get up here. But Revelation 4, this is the first scene that we are shown of worship in the book of Revelation. I want you as we're reading this, think about what is it that is making this worship so good. In Revelation 4, I'm reading here in verse number 8. The Bible says that the four living creatures, each of them with six wings... They are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before Him who is seated on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. Hold those thoughts in your mind and jump with me to chapter 15 now. In Revelation chapter 15, the scene that is depicted here. In Revelation 15, beginning in verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let me add one more to this. Fast forward to the very end of the book in chapter 22. In Revelation 22, I'm reading here beginning in verse 1. In Revelation 22 and in verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more there. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. What is the common thread in those passages? Well, it seems to me that when we look at these various worship scenes, what we are learning is we are learning that good worship adores God. Good worship is not a sentimental feeling. Good worship is not a pep rally where we are whipped up into an emotional frenzy. No, worship is when I realize that God is supremely deserving of my adoration, my praise, my admiration, and I then express that praise to Him. In contemporary terms, worship is whenever we say, our God is an awesome God. I want you to notice though, that we do more than just say, God, you're awesome. We do more than just say, God, you're awesome and we love you so much. No, we actually explain. We actually say why God is awesome and why He is so amazing. Would you go back to that first scene we just read there? Look in chapter 4 again. Notice what those creatures are saying. Look there in verse 8. There is substance to the words that they say. In Revelation 4 and verse 8, they say, Holy, holy, holy. That speaks of God's moral purity. That He is utterly different than we are. You think about it. We, we are lowly and sinful creatures. But God is the exact opposite. God is the very embodiment of purity. He is absolutely holy. 
You know, just, just thinking about that, that humbles me. I don't know what that does for you, but that humbles me. It causes me to, to stop looking at myself, stop looking at my own cares and my own thoughts. It causes me to look at the Lord and how great and how incredible He truly is. He is holy. And not only that, but look at what else they say. God is completely sovereign. They say, Lord God Almighty. That expression, Lord God Almighty, it appears repeatedly in the book of Revelation and with good reason. Those first century Christians, they were being run over by the Roman government. And as a result, they needed to be reminded and they then needed to remind each other who it was that was really in control. Who is it that is really sovereign and in charge? Who really is the king? It ain't Caesar. The real king is God. He is almighty, all-powerful. God is supreme over everything. In fact, just look at those four living creatures that are described there. Look at what's said there about those four creatures there in verses 6, 7, and 8. They've got eyes everywhere. They have the face of a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle. They've got wings all over them. You just try to picture that and think about that. If one of those creatures appeared down here on this earth, what would happen? People would probably start falling down and worshiping that creature. They'd say, we've never seen anything like that before. That's the most fearsome and wonderful and powerful creature I've ever seen. And yet those amazing, fearsome, powerful creatures, they worship God. He is the one who is all-powerful and almighty. He is the one as well who is eternal. What else do they say, verse 8? They say, who was and is and is to come. That is the designation that speaks of the fact that God, God is beyond time. He is beyond the parameters that we think of when we think about days and weeks and months and years. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is self-existent. He is uncreated. He is eternal. And so because of those things, verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, they worship that God, you want to be a better worshiper? Then start by getting your eyes off of yourself and fix your eyes on the Lord. Adore and praise Him. Stop thinking about what it is that you like. I came to worship today and here's all the things that I wanted to happen. Stop thinking about that. Stop thinking about all of your own worries and all of your own troubles. Check that at the door as best as possible because worship is about God. Focus on God. We have come here today to adore and reverence and praise and venerate God because He's holy, because He's all-powerful, because He is eternal. We are going to stand in awe of God. In fact, let's put that principle into practice right now. If you use a hymn book, would you open up the supplement to number one? Number one in the supplement, we'll have it on the screen. But number one in the supplement is the song, I Stand in Awe. And we're going to sing this song. And what that song is going to do is it's going to give each and every one of us an opportunity to do that first thing. To praise and adore God for all that He is. Let's worship God in song.
back to the book of Revelation. Let's read in Revelation chapter 5. Good worship adores God. I want you to notice secondly from Revelation that good worship declares the worthiness of the Lamb. In Revelation chapter 5, read with me beginning in verse number 1. In Revelation 5 verse 1, John sees, he sees this scroll and he sees these seals on the scroll. Verse 2, he asks, who is worthy? Who's able to open up this scroll and these seals? Verse 3, the answer is, no one is able to do that. And so verse 4, John begins to weep loudly because no one is found worthy to open those scrolls and to look into it. Then verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the foreign living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Good worship makes a statement 
This worship that we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 5, it is making a statement. It is saying something. It declares the worthiness of the Lamb who is Jesus the Christ. And that is so important. That really is so appropriate. The idea of declaring worthiness of someone, that's so appropriate for people who live back during the time of the New Testament. Because whenever maybe a a government official was elevated to a high position, or whenever someone was receiving some kind of special honors, then what would happen is someone would go out in front of that person. They would go before that person, and they would then declare. They would state all of the amazing virtues of this person. They would describe all of the accomplishments of this esteemed individual. They would talk about why it is that they are worthy of this honor, why they are qualified to hold this position. And so that is very fitting then as we think about the worship of Almighty God. That is fitting as we think about worship being for one who is worthy. One author put it this way. He said, worship is an active response to God where we declare that He is worthy. Worship is not passive. No, we participate. Worship is not a mood. No, it is a response. Worship is not a feeling. No, it is a declaration. And that's exactly right. You just stop and think about that. Do you make a declaration when you worship? Are you saying something of substance? Are you saying, Jesus, you are so worthy? That's exactly what's going on there in Revelation chapter 5. Look in verse 9 again. They are saying, you are worthy. Why? Because you were slain. You died. You died for me. And not only did Jesus, did you die for me? But you died, you died for everyone. By your blood, you ransomed Anyone who would desire to come to you, and then verse nine, to be a part, verse ten, to be a part of your kingdom. In fact, when those foreign living creatures and the twenty-four elders, whenever they make their declaration, what ends up happening next? Verse eleven says that everyone, then all of those who are part of the heavenly host, they start making that declaration. Worthy is the Lamb. They shout again and again. Maybe the practical point here with this idea is that whether I feel like worshiping or not, that's really kind of irrelevant. I've heard people say that. They come to church and they're like, I'm just not really really up for this. Not really in the mood to worship tonight. That is irrelevant here. Worship is not based on how I feel. Worship is based on the Lord. Think about feelings, they they change, they fluctuate from day to day, from hour to hour, from moment to moment. But worship is based on the worthiness of Christ who never changes. We can declare His worthiness not just tonight, but every day of our lives. In fact, verse 13 of that passage goes on to say that they do that forever and ever and ever. And so, if you're using a songbook, would you get out the big hymnal? Look at number 34 in our big song book. This is the song, Worthy Art Thou. And if you'll notice actually at the top of the heading there, this song is taken directly from the passage that we just read in Revelation chapter 5. Let's do what those people were doing in Revelation chapter 5. Let's declare the worthiness of the Lamb 
as we worship Him in song. We're going to sing all three verses and then the chorus at the end. Worthy of praise is Christ our Redeemer. Worthy of glory, honor, and power. Worthy of all our soul's adoration. Worthy art thou. Worthy art thou. Lift up the voice in praise and devotion. Saints of all earth, be born and should We'll turn to Revelation one more time. I want to string together several verses that we're going to read here in rapid succession to, to develop this third and final idea, and that is that good worship delights in submitting to God's authority. Let's start that in Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. Notice this. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Jump forward now to chapter 11. In chapter 11 and in verse 16. In chapter 11 and in verse 16. Those 24 elders who sit on their thrones. They, before God, they fell on their faces and worshipped God. One more in this connection in chapter 19. In chapter 19 and in verse 4. In chapter 19 and in verse 4, the 24 elders again and the four living creatures, they fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen and Hallelujah. In fact, while you're here in chapter 19, would you drop down to verse 10? John has this amazing encounter with an angel and he is really in awe of this angel. Look at what he does in verse 10. Then I fell down at the angel's feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am merely a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The implication there 
So if you're going to fall down, you fall down before God. From reading those passages, and I hope you saw the connecting theme in all of them, what happened in Revelation whenever people worshipped God? In Revelation, worship is not conducted comfortably seated on padded pews. That's not what happens in the worship of Revelation. In fact, in Revelation, worship is not even conducted by kneeling. I heard a lot about kneeling in our country here in the last week or so. In Revelation, when people worshipped God, they prostrated themselves before the Lord. And that really should not come as any surprise if you know about words, because the word that is translated worship in our New Testament, it's from a Greek word, a compound word, that means to kiss toward. To kiss toward. If you came into the presence of an authority or, or a dignitary or royalty, what would you do if you lived during that time? You would, you would kiss the hand. You would kiss the hand to show respect to that authority. In some cultures, that's still observed even to this day. But over time, what it came to mean is it came to mean bowing down. Prostrating oneself. That's what you do whenever the king comes into the room and he passes by you. You bow down. You prostrate yourself out of humility and out of respect. And in the book of Revelation, that is what worshipers are doing. They are getting down on their faces, pressed to the ground. What a remarkable picture and image of submission that that truly is. And you know, that is what we would do. If a great king who maybe has, has conquered us and overtaken us, if he comes into our presence, that is what we would do. We would bow down. And of course, if we did not bow down, what would happen? Well, what would happen is, is it would be considered a great insult. It would be a dishonor to that king. In fact, do you remember Haman in the book of Esther? What is it that gets Haman so worked up? Everybody is bowing down before him except Mordecai. Well, I hope you understand, we're not bowing down to Haman or any other man or even to an angel. We are bowing in worship to the Lord of Lords and to the King of Kings. In fact, would you go back to chapter 4, that passage we began with? When we read that earlier in chapter 4, did you notice in verse 10 that it says that those 24 elders, they fell down before Him, and then it says, they cast their crowns before the throne. Do you know what that means? The casting of the crowns? I always thought that what that meant is it meant they're, they're kind of, you know, giving the crown as, as a gift to the king. Hey, this is our, our gift to you. This is our worship. And so this is our gift to the king. But actually, in New Testament times, that is not what it would have meant. In New Testament times, when a ruler presented their crown to another ruler, a greater ruler, that symbolized submission. That symbolizes that I am submitting to you. I am bowing before you. And so I give you my crown because I recognize that I am not the king. You are the king. I am submitting to you. You are the Lord. I will obey you. I am subjecting myself to your authority. I bow down to the king. And in a very real way, Our worship, our worship must bow before the Lord. Not physically. Rita just had back surgery. That would be really hard for her and for others who are dealing with physical problems. 
What it means is it means we must bow our hearts. And in that sense, that's not something that everybody else can see. Really only God can see that. But we must bow our hearts to Him. Good worship demonstrates an attitude of heart that is saying to God, I am submitting to you. You are greater than I am. I am taking off my little crown that I wear. I've got my own little kingdom that I want to kind of be the the king and the ruler of as I go about my day-to-day life. No, I'm giving that up. I am submitting to you, Lord, as the Lord of lords and as the King of all kings. We've all probably known someone, in fact, maybe you are this someone, who's just so stubborn and so obstinate, and they just kind of walk around with this mentality, and maybe they even say it with their lips, I ain't bound down to anybody. You ever met somebody like that? I ain't bound down to nobody. But in worship, we do bow down. We better bow down. We better be falling at the Lord's feet. And when that is genuine, when we are doing that and it is real, and we do that in the worship assembly, that's wonderful. But I'll tell you this, the marvelous effect of that is that then ought to affect how we live our lives outside of this assembly. That I can't come in here and say that I submit to Christ in all things, and then as soon as I get ready to go out those doors, hey Lord, give me my crown back. I want to go back to being the king of my life. No, I can't do that. If I am sincere, I'm going to submit to Christ in here. Then I'm going to submit to Christ out there 24-7. And so, we're going to sing song number 434. All hail the power of Jesus' name. And you'll notice there's language in this song about bowing down, prostrating, falling down. And that's going to give us an opportunity not just to sing about Christ's authority, but it's also going to give us a chance to examine our lives and think very seriously about whether I'm doing that in my life daily. Am I prostrating and bowing down and falling at the Lord's feet in all that I do? Let's worship God in this song. We're going to sing the first and last verse. Oh, hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth our royal diadem and crown Him, Lord of all. Bring forth our royal diadem and crown Him, to be an effective worshiper. And I hope that you do too. I want my worship to be pleasing in God's eyes. 
We sometimes use the expression, Lord, may our worship come up before your throne as a sweet-smelling aroma. And that is what we want. That's a wonderful goal for our worship. I believe then this evening that if we can hold on to these three principles that the book of Revelation develops again and again in very vivid detail, then I can, in fact, worship God. I can bow before Him and I can offer Him my sacrifices in a way that is pleasing and in a way that is acceptable to Him. Let's use these principles from this little handbook on worship and let's place them deep in our hearts so that we will offer God good worship not just tonight, but every time that we come before His throne. You know, we've talked an awful lot this evening about the worship that's going on in heaven. And the truth of the matter is, that's where we're trying to go. That's the journey that many of us in this room are on. We're headed toward that place where we look forward to singing that new song that only the saints can know. We look forward to being able to do that literally around the throne of God. And the thing about that is, is we're trying, we're trying to bring others with us. We're trying to bring as many people with us as we possibly can. We don't want people to be left out of that number. We don't want people to come on the day of judgment. They're not able to sing that new song. We want to help people to be ready for eternity. Why don't you join us? There are people in this room I know this evening who are not Christians. Don't you want to be in that place that we've been talking about? It will be just so wonderful and so amazing. And Revelation gives us some glimpses of what that will be like. Don't you want to be there? We want you to be there. God wants you to be there. In fact, heaven is calling you to come and to be there. We're going to sing this song in just a moment. Number 285, Zion's Call. That's what that's talking about. Heaven is calling you to come. Live here. Be with the Lord. You have that opportunity. And all things are made ready for you this evening to become a child of God. If you're willing to confess your faith in Jesus as Lord, repent and turn from sin, and then be baptized in water for the remission of your sins, then tonight you can become a Christian. You can start marching with the rest of us as we head towards Zion. Brother or sister, if there is sin in your life and you're not living faithfully for the Lord, come back, repent of that, ask God for forgiveness, let us pray with you and encourage you and help you so that we can all go to heaven someday. If there's anyone who's subject to heaven's invitation, would you respond to it right now? Do that while we stand and while we sing.